Hi everybody and welcome to the Smart City Projects in Asia. Is that, are they gimmick or reality? Uh, we've heard a lot about smart cities and they're the, uh, they could be the epitome of a sophisticated and modern lifestyle where everything runs efficiently on the latest technology. Although the latest the term smart city has gained a wider currency, there's still some confusion about what exactly makes up a smart city and how do we evaluate whether that city is truly smart or whether it's just, you know, coming out of primary school. There are several terms that are often used interchangeably around smart cities. We've got smart buildings, smart transport and a series of other uh, opportunities. Today in the podcast we're going to talk about smart city projects uh, bringing together the team from IDC uh, we're joined by Randy Roberts who's the research director for telecom and IOT based in the ASEAN region uh, hailing out of Malaysia um, Ms. Shaley Shah who is senior research manager for IOT based out of Singapore and Nikhil Batra who is based out of Melbourne and covers the ANZ region uh, for the same uh, topics. Uh, hi everybody and welcome to the podcast. So the first thing we're going to start with is the concept of what exactly a smart city is and and, and Shaley I'd like to start with you. What exactly do we mean by the difference between a smart city and a smart community and a smart campus, uh, all those pieces? Thanks you. Uh, so just uh uh, just a very short and sweet definition of smart city is basically an urban ecosystem which uh, has the overall goal for economic development and citizen engagement and uh, overall it leads to improving the quality of life of its residents. So. Uh, a smart city on a, on a larger scale obviously includes the entire city or metropolitan area as we know it and uh, there are smaller projects that are in operation which which constitute your smart campuses and smart communities are essentially the uh, all the vendor ecosystem partners and the citizens who form a part of the smart city ecosystem. Okay, so so you mentioned the economic outcomes of a smart city as well as citizen benefits. So, are you saying that a smart city or a smart community is really also about uh, bringing extra revenue into that environment? Well, yes, uh, that is also one of the uh, uh, aims of uh, building a smart city. But essentially, the the main reason why we why we uh, are looking at smart cities very is very importantly now is because uh, uh, it, it does help to improve the quality of life. It's bringing together all the data points that all the different sensors across your city are uh, are transmitting and generating and trying to make sense of that information that can you be used for things like cost cutting, improving efficiencies of operations and overall eventually leading to uh, some sort of uh, avenues for revenue generation as well. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Uh, so, Randy, you're based up in Malaysia. Um, what are you seeing in the region, you know, across ASEAN in terms of the smart city projects that are coming to bear? And are they working? Yeah, I think, in, yeah, so in, great question. And I think in ASEAN, um, I think the definition that Shelley just gave us of the, the shiny city 
on the hill of a, of a smart city is the strategic view of what people expect a smart city to look like and a smart city to deliver. I think at least in Asian, what we're seeing is something that more tactical and more practical, where um, there, most of the governments in ASEAN have come out with an official strategy around smart cities and what they'd like it to do for their citizens. But I think what's happening in, in reality in these countries and even at the city level is that just the local governments that are actually now implementing smaller projects. And it, what, typically what I'm seeing in ASEAN is that the national governments are focused on those projects that, that improve efficiencies, make operations better and faster. The local governments, city governments, are more focused on making their citizens happy and making their lives better to some degree. That's kind of the difference that I'm seeing. So I think there's a top-down view of a strategy that's being you know, pushed inside the countries for a smart city, but I think more practically there's a bottom-up reality that's happening on the ground where the cities are now implementing uh, specific smaller projects that, are, that they really believe are going to be helpful for, their, for the citizenry. So our, um, the IDC Smart City Spending Guide says that by about 2020, we'll see about $113 billion a year in smart city spending, and over half of that will be focused on state and local government. So you mentioned that, you know, local government is focused on, on creating happy citizens. Uh, when we're looking at over, almost $60 billion a year in spend, um, What's the payback for that sort of money being invested to build happy citizens? Yeah, I think in general the payback is is not yet to the point where we're seeing financial paybacks and new revenue sources for the cities and for the local governments. I think right now the focus is actually on efficiency, uh, making people happy, making the governments work uh, better. Um, you know, maybe and you're right, Hugh. When you look at the ASEAN region, about 60% of the money that they spend is being spent by the local governments, about 40% from the national governments. The top three, according to the spending guide, the top three areas where that money is going is number one in healthcare. No doubt that over 50% of the spend is going into healthcare applications for smart cities. Number two is overall infrastructure, and number three is transportation. So those are the top three areas that money is being spent particularly in the in the uh, local governments. So a few examples of making it more efficient, not necessarily the financial return and the revenue streams, but making things more efficient. Um, uh, Singapore um, has launched uh, smart metering to make it easier for customers to see the usage of energy and pay for their bill. There are smart parking applications in Malaysia, Indonesia, and Singapore where it makes it very simple for people to find a parking spot and then pay for that parking spot over their phones. They don't have to worry about meters and coupons and those kinds of things. Um, and uh, in Japan, they're actually monitoring the water levels in the, in the water pipes so that they can uh, better manage the movement of water, particularly in flooding areas. So those are some examples of use cases that are happening at the local levels to make life better and to manage the local governments. Yeah, just just a couple of stats, uh, just out of India as an example. Um, one of the estimates shows that uh, traffic congestion uh, in Indian cities costs about $10 billion a year in lost productivity. Um, uh, India estimates it loses about $68 billion of its GDP due to electricity shortage, and 300 million of its citizens have no access to power. Um, I know Malaysia and certainly India as well 
uh, significant percentages of water is lost in the distribution system, creating situations uh, where uh, you know there is actually a drought situation in Kuala Lumpur, even though uh, it's on a tropical uh, equatorial uh, climate. And then, as you mentioned, healthcare um, across India again one doctor for every 1,700 people. Um, I want to bring Nikhil into this. Nikhil, you know, you're based in what must be considered um, the one, you know, two of the most mature markets in the region. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the smart city models that are coming out uh, across Australia and New Zealand? And is this a big thing? Right. So as, as Randy mentioned, uh, it basically all begins down from, you know, it's a ground up approach where Governments are today very focused on uh, specific projects that can help lead create that larger ecosystem because smart city, as we discussed, it means uh, different things to different people. When you look at a country like uh, New Zealand, where the population and GDP are not very high, but it has the you know highest ease of doing business, uh, a lot of focus on innovation, and you know uh, what what's happening on the regulatory side is supporting a lot of these projects. Government. Uh, it's driving a lot of uh, innovations in the in the broadband space because connectivity is uh, looked at as one of the bases or basic uh, elements of a smart city. So the government has driven uh, ultra-fast broadband and rural broadband initiatives, uh, forming public-private partnerships, focusing on increasing the mobile and LTE coverage uh, to help bring everything together. Uh, and on the other hand, if you if you look at Australia, you see a, a similar sort of a trend where uh, national broadband networks, uh, NBN, a government initiative, is again focused on creating countrywide networks that would be uh, very important and uh, of high priority in driving a lot of uh, these smart city projects as we move forward. Okay, so so you mentioned connectivity. I mean, how important? are networks to the realization of the smart city dream and what elements of technology uh, and especially connectivity are going to be essential for bringing some of these use cases to life? I think connectivity will be very, very important in terms of uh, IoT and smart cities to have the magnitude uh, of impact that we are talking about today. Uh, and when you talk about what elements of connectivity, I think it's primarily you can break it down into uh, the fixed and mobile networks. And when you're talking about IoT, it's largely about uh, mobile networks where it would be about low latency, uh, high capacity networks, uh, and also the fact that you can slice the networks different ways in order to, uh, something that 5G allows in order to uh, have different QoSs and different quality of uh, services on the same network to allow for different kind of applications. Mm -hmm. Hugh, Randy here. So if I could, if I could just add maybe to what Nikhil just said, you know, connectivity is clearly key to the smart city uh, success. And in in uh, the APAC region, excluding Japan and China, the number one area in terms of the ecosystem of hardware, software, connectivity, services, etc. The number one category in the ecosystem span for ASEAN countries is, is connectivity. Hmm. Number two is ongoing content and services. So the top two spend areas for the Asian region is connectivity number one. And then interesting, 
ongoing services like content as a services is number two, and the ongoing services is actually the fastest growing. So when we dig into the connectivity, what we see is that over 50% of those connections are actually fixed connections, and that includes uh, fixed but also Wi-Fi that may be backhauled with a fixed network. Mm -hmm. Only about 15% of those connections are actually cellular, um, licensed cellular networks. So 5G is coming and it'll, it'll improve in terms of the share that's going into wireless. But at least today and in the near term, in terms of connectivity spend, most of that's actually going into the fixed network. So that may, for one example, could be in Singapore where they're launching, uh, they're installing 100,000 lamp posts around the city with, with the different sensors on there, including video cameras, et cetera. Most of those lamp posts are actually be connected with uh, with fiber, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we sometimes tend to think about connectivity for smart cities as being wireless, but at least in the near term, the majority is actually going to be on fixed networks. And as I said, interesting that the second largest spend category in the next few years is around ongoing services. And again, this is where the consumer and the citizens come in to take advantage of the, the applications and the services and things that are moving to the cloud and those kind of things being offered by the government around the smart city. So so that leads us on to, um, you know, how do we pay for all this stuff? Because you know, as, as we look at these sorts of innovations and people say move to the cloud and put in connected light posts and connected buses and trains, um, how are we seeing that cities are going to pay for it um, and, and what's the benefit? Uh, and I'll bring Shaley in on this particular one. I mean, where are the predominant use cases and, and where's the value, uh, once again, from those use cases that the cities are getting? Right, uh, Hugh. So, I mean, uh, just to continue from uh, what Nikhil and Vandy were saying earlier, uh, uh, connectivity is the backbone of uh, of these use cases to really bring them to life. and. Uh, I mean, there are some interesting examples of how this is actually uh, coming through. And, uh, you know, going back to the example of Australia, uh, there's uh, the city of Adelaide is uh, laying out a 10 GBPS uh, fiber optic network. And they're doing a bunch of things with that. They're doing uh, smart LED street lighting. They're doing smart parking solutions, waste bins, and a bunch of other things. So, uh, I mean, there, there are different sort of values. There is an intangible value which is derived from this, which, which comes to uh, to the citizens, like I said, to improve their quality of life, to uh, help things make things better, smoother. Uh, there is also value derived in the form of helping improve efficiencies, helping cut down the, break down the silos with, within the government departments for, for making them work together better by having, uh, you know, free exchange of data and information. And also, uh, till a certain extent, uh, it, it trickles down to, uh, you know, how, how the overall city functions and how it brings around a lot of uh, semblance in the way uh, traffic management systems work and, uh, you know, smart lampposts work and everything, the ecosystem as a whole. Sorry, so uh, just a couple more examples in terms of how they pay for these things. A couple of other examples from Singapore um, that's happening today. One is that the, the utility board in Singapore has actually uh, begun to hand out uh, water monitors and water meters in for the citizens inside their homes, they actually connect to the showers and 
and track the amount of water that they're actually using during a shower. And there's a, a color indicator on this meter that's actually on their shower that actually gives them a real-time indication of they're using more than they should, less than they should, are they okay, and they can adjust it on the fly. That water data is then shared over Bluetooth with their smartphone application, which is then shared to the cloud. And that information, then, in terms of usage, is accumulated over many, many users. And then the government gets to look at that to see where, how can they better manage the water. So it reduces the, the water bill for the consumer. It allows the government to monitor the water usage and, and uh, flow better. And so that's one of the advantages that uh, is coming out of that in terms of the financial side. The lampposts I mentioned earlier, one of the key parts about these lampposts um, that they're putting in is the smart bulbs, right? So they think they can save 25% in terms of the energy cost that's lighting up the city in these new lampposts as well, which is uh, another way they're, they're paying for it. And one last third quick example is self-driving vehicles for transportation where the governments are investing in this kind of technology in Singapore in particular, of course, one of the biggest uh, savings for them on this is manpower in terms of uh, drivers. So uh, th there are great examples of how they can improve the lives of the citizens and at the same time look for those ways to, to save costs in other areas based on the new te technology that's being implemented. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting that uh, Nick Hill just mentioned, uh, sorry, Shaley mentioned uh, Adelaide uh, because they've just won the uh, uh, the right to be the home of the uh, Australian Space Agency. So getting an investment of $41 million uh, into that city, creating an, an innovation area and uh, hopefully, you know, tripling the size of the contribution uh, of the space industry to Australia to about $12 billion. So that's all um, good stuff. Let, let, let's go away from the positives a little bit and... Um, I'll come back to Nikhil and say, you know, what are some of the problems we've got? And, and, and obviously the three of you can, uh, can join in here. Um, what are the, some of the challenges that are going to stop us realizing uh, the vision of the shining city on the hill? Right. So uh, I think some of the very, very immediate ones that we see are around uh, some of the cybersecurity protocols and how do we actually handle uh, security in this respect because we're talking about elements out or uh, out in the field uh, and with hacking becoming and those kind of cyber issues becoming so prevalent, that's one of the biggest challenges. And the the other side could be the, uh, the talent gap. Uh, that's been one of the biggest challenges that has come across in some of our, some of IDC's surveys as well, uh, that the governments, the enterprises, the organizations uh, who are a part of this whole smart city ecosystem, they are uh, having challenges uh, retaining and uh, getting, that, ta getting uh, that talent to work for them, uh, especially in the data analytics and data science space. Uh, so, you know, I think these could be uh, a couple of challenges that, that we are looking forward to. R Randy. Yeah, I think my, uh, my comment, yeah, sure. Yeah, sorry. My comment would be, I think for me, what I see in ASEAN is the, the bigger challenge is not necessarily a, a strategy challenge or a technology challenge. It's, it's more of a, I'll call it a public-private partnership slash ecosystem problem. Um, uh, I think we can, that seems to be the biggest challenge. It tends to slow down the implementation of a lot of these projects. We, we have a few examples of successful implementations of smart cities around Singapore, in, in China, in Taiwan, in Taipei, 
of course, and in Japan, where they're doing quite well. One of the reasons they've done really well as a learning, I think, for some of the other maybe developing countries, is this public-private partnership uh, focus that they've had. And I've used uh, Taiwan as an example. In Taipei, they have a strategy called uh, Taipei Smart City, and they've actually, uh, a year ago, they developed a, a smart city board um, to have a top-down push in terms of identifying specific areas of technology and use cases that, that they want to have pushed into the city. Um, there's, they then couple that with an ecosystem development exercise that's a bottom-up exercise where, where the, the uh, smart city board will set the direction of the priorities. The, the ecosystem community inside Taiwan then takes those priorities and comes up, with, come up, comes up with ideas and solutions, applications, services that address those priorities. And then they actually get together and they basically have a, a bake-off, if you will, where the, the local ecosystem partners will present these ideas to the board and those that get approved get some funding and, and get help and support in terms of uh, incubation and ecosystem support. So that's one great example of how the public-private partnership is actually working quite well. It's something similar in Singapore and Japan as well. As you get into the countries in ASEAN, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, it's a little bit more difficult. And in a lot of cases, you do see the governments come up with a strategy that says we want to be a smart city by you know, 2022, for example. But what's lacking, I think, is the support, uh, the support of the ecosystem inside these countries, and that's why that's where I think we're we're seeing a little bit of the the slower implementation in some of these developing countries is because the ecosystem uh, support for these uh, companies in country is just not quite there yet. The follow through in terms of lining up the priorities of what the governments are trying to get done with the ecosystem inside the country. Uh, just isn't quite there yet. And I think one other thing to mention in terms of the ecosystem, uh, I think the governments have to realize that, that they will have to go outside of their country to fulfill uh, all the pieces of the ecosystem. Singapore does it, uh, Taiwan does it, Japan does it. They all realize that they don't have all the technology, devices, software, hardware, servers, IoT, connectivity, sensors, they don't have it all inside the country. And without exception, uh, they have to reach outside their own country to find partners to bring in pieces of technology to make those things happen. Okay, so so what I'm hearing across the board uh, is... Yeah, sorry, shall we go ahead? Right, sorry. Uh, just to add to what Randy was mentioning, uh, I, I think uh, I kind of agree, and uh, I would feel that uh, in, in ASEAN, especially some of the developing countries, uh, the fact that a lot of government departments still work in silos uh, is one of the reasons why these implementations are slow, which is why, you know, to justify the business case of some of these IoT deplo deployments, that becomes that much more challenging. So, you know, a country may probably have the right environment, may have the right infrastructure and re uh, IoT readiness, but, uh, you know, if, if the business environment is not, not good enough or if the government is not effective enough in driving some of these uh, initiatives, that's where I'm, I'm also seeing uh, a difference in the way, say, for example, a Singapore or a China would, uh, would operate as compared to an India or a Malaysia. Okay, so, so we've got issues around, you know, obviously creating those partnerships between private industry and the public sector, managing uh, security um, and building trust. Um, I think ADC's um, uh, Smart Cities Predictions focuses on the building of trust and security. Um, 
but also you know prioritizing those projects and understanding what needs to be done next in in sort of closing this up because we'd like to keep it to about half an hour um who do you see as you know the standouts and in in your particular areas each of you and where do you see this going over the next two to three years from a predictive standpoint and 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 from a spend and solution uh perspective so uh from a from a telecom standpoint and from a connectivity standpoint from what we have spoken uh we we've developed the uh iot readiness index for telecom and from what we see there in across asia pacific uh countries like south korea singapore new zealand uh and australia kind of leading the chart uh and what's happening there is as i said it's the, there's a lot of focus on the connectivity side of thing building nationwide networks and over the next few years what we expect is once these uh networks get positioned well once these networks once you have these uh, nationwide networks uh then some of these government silos start breaking down there's a lot of focus on specific use cases and some of the uh some of the leading cities around the around the region are actually breaking it down by by horizons in terms of what's in play today uh which could be something like uh you know maybe officer variables or water quality monitoring or environmental monitoring uh and then uh go to the next horizon say 3 years down the road uh and come up with use cases and start working on specific use cases uh such as early warning systems or it could be emergency management or uh connected museums parkings uh stadiums those kind of use cases or autonomous vehicles for that matter uh and then start working on those specific use cases and start developing the ecosystem uh within the com- uh, countries around that yeah i think uh, as i mentioned earlier the mat- the uh, mature developed countries singapore taiwan china of course are going to continue to lead in implement, implementing these uh, use cases but again i think it'll be a bottoms up approach i don't think there's going to be a, a massive national smart city uh, umbrella that's going to happen right away it's going to be much more bottoms up even in these developed countries that are having some success i think what i would add to that though i think that the the future is bright for the a lot of the developing countries as well including malaysia thailand and particularly vietnam I talked about the fact that their ecosystems are quite immature and there's not quite the public private partnership uh level that they need just yet but but what's happening is uh in these developing countries is yard beginning now to see private companies from outside of the country come in and provide consultancy technology and learnings that they that they've implemented in other in other parts of Asia so for example Alibaba has come into Malaysia and is implementing something they call a CityBrain which is a cloud-based data analytics platform that allows Malaysia to begin to understand what's happening in terms of traffic traffic and moving people and flooding to begin to collect data and then be able to use those insights to make better decisions Fujitsu from Japan has has started a large project inside Vietnam with the government of Vietnam uh to develop a command and control center for energy management and, and traffic control those kinds of things so uh it, what's happening is as i mentioned earlier if the ecosystem partnership if the ecosystem technology is not mature enough in some of these developing countries 
what's happening is you see external companies coming into those countries and providing sort of the kickstart, if you will, of some of these programs to get things going. And that, in turn, starts to sort of uh, uh, have new startups come into those countries, new technology players come in and they gravitate to those projects. And that's, that's sort of, again, from the bottom up, beginning to help the maturity level of the ecosystems inside some of these developing countries. Um, one thing that I'll add in one particular area, based on the data that we see from our IoT decision maker decision maker survey, in a lot of these new areas, some of these developing countries are actually leapfrogging the larger countries. And for example, in, in analytic in analytics, the the ASEAN countries are actually using analytics in a much more aggressive way than some of the developed countries in the U.S., for example, or even in China. Um, they're using the insights much more aggressively than some of the countries. They're using it to make uh, better decisions, to understand the customers, to generate new revenue streams. So that's a, one example that we see in our survey results, that these developing countries are actually, in some of these areas around technology, are actually outperforming some of the developed countries. So I, I think over the next few years, we'll see a lot of activity and a lot of growth happening in these developing countries in Asia. Uh, right. So just to kind of... Uh uh, sum up my thoughts on this and since I'm based in Singapore I may be a little biased but I do think that Singapore is doing some really good things in terms of uh, you know its futuristic uh, uh, IOT uh, deployments uh, one one good thing that, uh, that that is really working in its favor is the citizen involvement and as Randy mentioned earlier they have these water meters they have these energy meters which help the citizens to actually control their consumption and be a part of the entire energy saving uh, initiative so I guess uh, you know the future of smart cities will will of course along with the technology the ecosystem partners also involve uh, a lot of uh, citizens uh, in their decision making and what I think Singapore, what is really working for Singapore is that not only is it being uh, well uh, well received for retrofitting the existing smart building projects, but also in, in coming up with uh, new uh, greenfield projects. You know, for example, Pungolu Eco Town, where they've done planning right from the time even before the entire township came up with the help of uh, simulation softwares and things like that. So that's the kind of uh, smart cities of the future that I, I see, uh, you know, will, will really yield uh, uh, interest in the future. Brilliant. Um, so we'll close out here, and I'd like to thank my three guests, uh, Randy Roberts from uh, ASEAN, uh, Nikhil Batra from ANZ and Shaili Shah from Singapore for their views and insights. Make sure to check out idc.com for the uh, research that the three of these people um, and the broader IoT and telco community are bringing to bear. Uh, um, take a look at our urban ecosystems uh, program and we'll also have a conversation in future with uh, my colleague from Government Insights, Gerald Wang. So look for that one to come up. And thanks for everybody for participating.